Welcome to the Front Office Exchange, where we take a look at the careers of executives and rising stars within the sports business. Now, here's your host, Jake Failing. Ho, 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 everybody. Welcome to episode 20, the holiday edition of the Front Office Exchange podcast. And today, Look, it's your present under the tree. If you're into sports business podcasts, which hopefully you are if you're listening, then we've got kind of the guest to bring you, Troy Kirby, host of the Dalv Sports Podcast. Now, let's be honest. If you're listening to this podcast, you're definitely listening to Troy's. <laughs> when I started this podcast a few months ago, uh, you know, yes, I had a few plans in mind, but I would be lying if I said that I didn't try to mimic much of what he does. Uh, while his podcast is more topical rather than career-focused like mine is or I try to be, his passion and energy and his know-how And just the sheer volume of podcasts that he pumps out is staggering. You know, this is number 20 for me, and he's north of 700, maybe 750 at this point. It's unbelievable. He is a machine, and he has set quite the bar in the sports business podcast world that I am trying to match. At some point, Troy and I went for close to an hour, uh, and he is very modest. He commented at one point that he said he's sure he's being boring. No one wants to listen to more than half an hour. The podcast is running too long. I said, look, hey, I disagree. Uh, If people are listening, this is what they sign up for. They want to hear your advice, what you've learned over the years, your favorite guests, things like that. Um, So yes, this is one of the longer podcasts that I've posted, uh, but if you're into sports business, it's awesome. Um, Troy's perspective on always wanting to learn, grow, and experience best practices in sales, even in different industries, is just great to hear. He talked about going to uh, a sales conference or a meeting in the automobile industry the other night just to learn how they do it, which is, I think a lot of us in sports business probably don't go out of that comfort zone. Uh, He mentioned some of his favorite podcasts over the years, and he gives some advice uh, that he likes to share to those in the industry, just including, look, there's no excuse in today's day and age not to do something, anything you want to do. If you want to be an online chef, go do it. If you want to be a sports podcast host, go do it. So we talked about that. Um, Technology puts everything at our fingertips, and case in point are his and my podcast. Uh, We talked about his upcoming sales boot camps, what he's up to now in addition to the podcast, and much, much more. Uh, This is great. Buckle up. Hopefully, if you've got a half-hour commute, it'll take you there and back. And I think you'll enjoy it. So as I affectionately refer to him as the godfather of sports business podcast, Troy Kirby of the Dow of Sports. Troy Kirby, welcome to the Front Office Exchange podcast. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, I mean, come on, this is uh, this is a big deal. I mean, like I said to you beforehand, I told you you're the uh, the godfather of sports business podcasts. Uh, when I started this, everybody said, "Hey, you got to be sure to listen," and uh, of course, I already was. Um, so it's an honor, Troy, to have you on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I I appreciate it. Uh, titles like that kind of you know make me nervous. Usually people you know take them with a lot of hubris, and I want to at least be a little humble in the fact that I don't feel like a godfather. I've, you know, and uh, I just I think that a lot of people have a lot of great ideas. Neil Horowitz uh, does a great podcast, and uh, Sean uh, Callanan, and I think you'll probably do a great podcast as it gets going. It just takes time and. I just think I was crazy enough to have over 700 episodes. That's kind of where you kind of get the leadership stuff. Yeah, so I'm not even at 20 
at this point. Oh. So I can't even imagine 700. So, you know, I'm just getting started. So I, we could start there. We'll go back through your career a little bit, uh, obviously. But let's start with the podcast. How did you come up with the idea? How has it evolved? And just truly the volume. Uh, any Any tips for someone like me? Uh, as you've gotten going and and just you keep churning out episode after great episode. Well, I enjoy talking to people. I used to um, call people up and talk to them for a half hour without ever knowing them um, all the time that were in the industry. I mean, over the years, especially in the uh, you know mid two thousands, when I was trying to get better at this, I would just uh, look somebody up online, say you obviously know something. Uh, this is before LinkedIn, so just kind of looking at their athletic staff page or any kind of you know social media presence. I'd call them up. Sometimes they'd be surprised. But a lot of people will give you time if you're going to ask poignant questions. And I think that's important. A lot of people, you know, they they want to read a blog post, but they don't actually want to talk to the person. And I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Anytime that I was at a conference, I would always just sit down and talk to uh, whoever was there and uh, make sure that I got something out of it. I, you know, and by the way, this does not mean just within your industry. I think that is also something that uh, what I would call a fallacy is uh, we only talk to the people that are in our industry. Well, then you only get insular comments and ideas. I want to get you know dynamic comments. Last night, um, I went and crashed an automotive uh, association meeting because uh, they had a different sales trainer that was uh, presenting there. It was free. I just had to buy the meal. And I learned not only a lot about cars, uh, but also about how they have to deal with some of the things in their industries, uh, with service technicians, with uh, people that are not showing up, how to you know make things billable, but also show that to the customer, add value in everything that they do. And it helps when I now have to relate that to somebody within the sports industry. And I know that a lot of people kind of turn off from that. You know, that's why the boot camp was, invented uh, at ALSD, the Association of Luxury Suite Directors, um, specifically because I could bring on, you know, uh, speakers for 30 minutes, uh, do about 17 of them at a time. And with each of them, sometimes I would have people that were completely off the wall. I had a stand-up comedian at one of them. I had a person that was a LinkedIn expert. I've had people that have nothing to do with sports, but that's the caveat. That's what you want. You want to find out what everybody else is doing so that you can then apply that to your industry and you're not getting the same nodding heads. And I think that that kind of comes back to what the podcast is about. Right. Uh, the podcast is not always about uh, working in sports. I think that that subject sometimes uh, gets a little beat to death with well, my journey, well, you know, that's great, but, you know, um, at the same time, we've all got to sell this thing right? or we've got to be a part of it. So, uh, you know, what do we do to get better? And that's where the challenge came. And, um, you know, that was uh, 2012 that I started the podcast. Um, I uh, The name comes, uh, the Dow of Sports comes from uh, walking through Chinatown and uh, I was discussing it loudly with a friend. We were just talking over ideas, and a homeless uh, guy had uh, piped up. He goes, uh, "Call it the Dow of Sports. Call it the Dow of Sports. It'll, you know, all things flow Come within." On. Is that so, right? 
Wow. Yep. So I uh, gave him 25 bucks, and I feel that's a good residual. I So I haven't seen so. him since, and if I did go through San Francisco's Chinatown and did see him, I would give him more money, but I don't have a, uh, you know, I don't have a forwarding address. But um, at the same time, it's, you know, it's been a great experience, and it started off once a week. And the thing is, is I enjoyed doing it. So I was spending vacation time doing a lot of these. And this is where a lot of people make the mistake. They think that everything that you do when you put it out is, boy, you're doing that right now. I've always been like 10 ahead. Right. You know, 10 episodes ahead. And I think a backlog is good, but a lot of people mistake it and they don't understand what that means. And you're not going to get them there. It's, you know, you're just not going to get them to where, you know, they understand. But, you know, there were a lot of times to where I was having, you know, whole months to where I wasn't even doing a podcast. But you saw a podcast because they were coming out three times a week sure. because I had spent my entire vacation doing it. I um, traveled the state of Florida uh, once. I traveled the state of Arizona twice uh, during that while on vacation. So um, I did spring training two years in a row. And, you know, once you just start logging in podcasts, do three times whatever – you know, for a week, but sometimes I was doing five, six a day. Cause I just, I already arranged them. I'd sit down with people. I knew where they were and, you know, then I could launch them at my ease. And that's how you schedule your content and, you know, get it out there. The problem is everybody wants things immediate. Right. And so everyone thinks that everything should be immediate. And when they do that, they end up putting out white noise. I think, right. you know, when you drip it out, People um, consider it much more interesting, and plus, it was only a half hour, you know. So, I, I think that you get a lot more interest and impact when you're releasing, you know, once a week. Um, I'll give you an example. So, uh, Tamika Smith Jones, that was a podcast, is seven eighteen. Well, that was done three months before, two months before. Sure. So. But it was released in October, the end of October, almost November. So you heard it at a different time to when it was recorded. But you know, people will go, "Oh wow, you know, you did that podcast right there." Yeah, but that was a long time ago, you know. And that allows me to edit it if I need to, or uh, you know, to make sure I've got a right headshot or you know, position it because I do kind of look at when are some of the you know times and when are some of the you know, dates that certain podcasts will work with certain people, um, specifically with her and athletics. Uh, she's was more of a Wednesday, Friday, if that makes any sense. Cause sometimes it's like, you know, there are certain, uh, listenerships that I think happen at certain days, you know, um, you know, Mondays tend to be more of the marketing cycle. That's interesting. Have um, you just learned this along the way just to kind of see how many clicks you get at downloads or is that just something you've kind of created? Um, I think it's also been from, you know, the times to where I would look on, you know, social media, see who shared it. Um, I actually, for the first year, did not look at any of the statistics. Right. And I, I highly recommend that you don't. You know, that's the other thing. You know, uh, comparison is the thief of joy, Samuel Clements. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can call him by whatever name you want. But um, really, he's honest about the fact that, or was honest about the fact that, you know, looking at what everybody else does simply bums you out, you right. know, because you're not, you're seeing yourself as, 
you're not doing enough. And I think that that's, you know, really, um, that's why you shouldn't look at your stats. Your stats don't matter. It's really your focus. Yeah. And so that's where I would throw out the idea of focus. So early in your career, you were uh, in front of the mic. Let's say you were on air and you had that journalism background. I know that your career has really moved toward that sales side and a real just passion, interest in uh, ticket sales strategies, best practices along those lines. Did Was the media, the on-air personality, was that always kind of spinning in the background and did that drive the podcast as well? Well, early in my career, so early in my career, are you talking the 1990s? I, I mean, am. I'm, I'm going all the way back, Troy. years old. I, I'm going so. all the way. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm an old man. So or at least <laughs> I feel that way. No, I mean, uh, look, um, you know, one of my first jobs was working at a daily newspaper and uh, as a teen press corps member and, you know, going out and having to interview people about, uh, you know, not it was more feature articles. But, hey, what's going on in your business downtown and, you know, that sort of stuff. But I mean, I've, you what you'll find is if you're doing it right, you'll work a multiple of careers and you'll be able to t- apply those skills later on uh, to go back and, you know, kind of help you with whatever you're doing. The people that stay into one finite group or one path, I always fear because they don't really kind of go outside their comfort zone. You know, uh, I mean, I think that that's where a lot of people kind of you know, get a misguided effort because they only get one view of the world. You know, that's why I always treasure people that have, you know, traveled, you know, to Europe or traveled, you know, whether to be Australia or Asia or other places, because they have a much deeper perspective on really not only how the United States is viewed, but how the world is viewed. And I think that that kind of goes back to um, the industry. If you're only in this industry and that's all you've done, I question, you know, what you really know beyond and whether or not that's valuable stuff. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like if you were trapped in media and that's all you did, you know, are you are you really able to, you know, suggest that, you know, more about, you know, the other industries that are out there because you've been so focused on media. So, I, I mean, I've had a variety of stuff. It's not always been you know, uh, you know, bread and roses, but I mean, it has been interesting and well, it's well, a wild ride. Well, let's talk about that wild ride. So again, I touched on the early career in media and journalism, but you've had roles outside of sports as well. So, you know, if you want, if, if we can, can you just kind of walk through quickly your career and, and how it's taken you to where you are now? Oh, heck. I mean, at one point I was, I worked for a year at a title company. <laughs> I, I learned that. more about organization and more about uh, first of all this was back in the days when you could smoke in the office okay so they would actually have title examiners that you'd pull wor- uh, work for you know you'd spend all day making copies of this work um, to go to so they could examine this title so we could see if we could transfer it for somebody that could purchase it and you'd have guys that were actually accidentally lighting the the forms on fire because they would dangle their cigarette too much Back in a different era as the smoking was still around. But, uh, I mean, there are always going to be, you know, different uh, things that you do. But how do you apply that? Well, organization helped me. So when I did uh, go back to school and, you know, get a degree, it was something that, you know, 
I was not only interested in but capable of doing because I had uh, an extra skill set for it. And, you know, the other thing is patience. Um, I I see that uh, certainly with a lot of people is they they get impatient. You know, whether or not they're going to, you know, succeed. Eh, just be patient and keep doing great work and you know adapting. I worked at a place called Title Temps, which was a temporary staffing agency in you know Burbank, and at one point, and that was interesting in itself because you dealt with so many different people. Uh, you were placing people left and right. People would screw up all the time. You'd have to talk to them. Uh, you'd have to deal with you know crazy people. I mean, there's always going to be people, but there's definitely going to be crazy people in temporary staffing. Um, we'd have to attack people in different ways in order to get them to, uh, consider our, um, title temp, uh, replacements, you know, the temporary staffing folks. So what we do is, um, this was when you first set up and before the anti-spam laws, but we actually did it not with email, but with faxes. So we set up this, uh, giant network of, I was, uh, told, Hey, I need you to cold call these people and say, Hey, I'd like to send you my resume. And get their fax number because, you know, this was before online was right. really that huge. Sure. So I'd, I'd bang out the phone. I'd do about, a, you know, probably about 50, 60 phone calls a day and get all of these people waiting for my resume. They wouldn't get my resume. What they'd get is a fax on their fax machine of um, the latest stuff that they could get from uh, hiring a temporary service person. And then I'd have to work with... Um, the local branches because there were, you know, several branches, you know, within the United States and I'd have to place ads, uh, in for them that were non-display, but they were in classified. This is before Craigslist took over and you'd actually have to, you know, work with them on what, uh, type of ads should be placed. Like we'd pay a place in the Miami Herald every single week in the, um, you know, place in Omaha and, you know, some of those, just bizarre. But here's the thing. It taught me how to be comfortable. It taught me what people look for when it comes to advertisements. And all of those things happened before I went back to school, you know, and that's the thing is school complimented what I did. School wasn't, you know, what school didn't tell me what I should do. And I actually learned more. I got to be honest, uh, learned more from uh, community college than I learned from uh, the 40 year and the, um, you know, graduate degree. I, you know, that's one thing I'll, I'll say for, um, you know, people that just went to a four year, people went and got their graduate degree, et cetera, is you missed out because, uh, the community college, community colleges tend to, you know, have a little more TLC. They tend to be with, uh, professors that have actually worked in a variety of fields. Right. And that's what I got. So I got a journalism professor that had not just worked in journalism as an intern or, you know, as somebody who is studying to get their PhD, but has worked as a hard nosed journalist for a bunch of years. So they had a lot of great stuff to, you know, pass on and how to design a, you know, a a page or how to uh, describe, you know, certain things. I remember that he talked about um, use dimensions when you're talking about uh, things that look like they can, you know, refer to uh, dimensions. So like dime size uh, drops of blood on the ground. And I know that sounds weird. Like, why would that be important? But that's a visualization yeah, in your in. writing. Sure. And 
uh, Wade Fisher, uh, who is at Centralia College, was um, somebody that I had just been laid off from a um, job data processing at a place called OCLC, where um, we input library cards, you know, because back in the day they had all these library cards. So, you know, like Dewey Decimal System, that's how you looked up, um, you know, what books were available. So they wanted these all input. And then after they input them, I learned the harsh reality that you could be laid off or you could be fired at any time. We walked into a meeting where they said they were moving the company to Ohio because uh, in Ohio they didn't require two 15-minute breaks uh, per day like they did in Washington State. Okay. And uh, we walked out of that meeting. It was like a NASCAR pit crew team was starting to take down all of our uh, stuff at once. So literally there was a box of each of our stuff and all of the cubicles were gone and all of the computers were gone within that 10 minute period that we had been in that meeting. It was, wow. but there were some great things that I learned from that. And, um, you have to learn to protect yourself as well as, you know, be prepared for the next step. Always have savings available. You know, don't believe that the job will be there forever. That's how people get stunned and people get upset is they believe in certain truths that are not truths. They're, they're really a fiction you've created for yourself. You can be fired at any time, and that's just part of the process. So, you know, when you learn those things and then you go into a community college, yes, it's humbling, but, you know, you, you learn more about yourself. And from there, um, I spent two years and, you know, learned a lot about the radio business, got into the radio business, and learned, you know, certain things that I didn't care about the radio business. Like, there is no health coverage. There were uh, there was a guy named Jr. who uh, constantly had dental trouble. Who would be on the air, and then uh, you know the second the mic turned off, uh, would be you know uh, really upset because he'd have to chew ice because his teeth hurt. I mean, those are some of the things that you learn wow. as that industry starts to die. Well, yeah. here's the thing: is it's not making fun of anybody. It's saying that no, there are tough. certain economies of scale, sure, and there are certain things that you learn about. Um, every job that you've been at. So, um, you know, I learned, I mean, I was at a, a country music uh, and classic rock station, which were combined because there's country music and then a small little version of a computer running off, uh, you know, with uh, classic rock. And what was funny was the country music was live. The classic rock was not. And I noticed that computer in the back that was running all of that stuff um, you know, scheduled, they'd voice track us, which yep. meant that, uh, we'd record all the stuff, but we'd only get paid one hour, even though we'd be giving eight hours worth of content to them, you know, of our voice, et cetera. And, you know, used to talk to, you know, kind of a bigger guy that was there, the bus man, and he'd go, Oh, don't worry about a kid there. There's no way that those things can replace us. And, um, I remember looking at the Arbitron ratings, which were the ratings at the time. And this is about, say like 2002 and you know they steadily that classic rock station was climbing up and our country music live station was you know going down and i was like uh oh that's the future and that's not good for the rest of us and you know after i left uh, they i think they lasted about four or five more years and then they uh sold off the station everyone uh dispersed to whatever jobs so you have right. to you have to also know the marketplace and how the marketplace is changing. I don't think that, and that kind of following this up, I think that that's where some of the sports industry is going to change. 
And a lot of people are trying to find it right now. A lot of people are not seeing that computer where they, you know, have you do eight hours of content and get uh, one hour of work. So but, you're talking media specific to sports or, you know, you know even on the sales talking, side, you've got analytics. I'm, and, I'm, right. I'm, I'm talking sales. I'm talking the fact that Amazon is now getting into this. So Amazon could change the industry overnight because you're not just talking about merchandise, which I think tying in merchandise. Hey, you, you've bought a Raiders outfit. Guess what? We've now got Raiders tickets available. I mean, that's huge. That's data right, right there. Sure. But here's the thing. They're also looking at getting into the live sports content. So if I'm looking at uh, you know some game, gosh, I'm just watching Thursday night football on Amazon.com. And I do watch you know some of their you know direct you know to video stuff that they've got because they usually have better classic movies than even Netflix. That to me is a selling point that even sports right now and even the live digital channels has not gotten into i'm surprised twitter twitter has failed in my opinion hmm. uh, with its live sports content because it hasn't it knows that i watch those games it hasn't it, leveraged the fact that they've got you and they don't sell right. tickets they don't yep. sell any hard merchandise they don't sell anything that actually creates it they're still worried about ads and you're still worried about ads that could be something that's maybe relevant for another year but if you can get me to buy, then you might get me to, you know, not only do that, but do 10 other things, you know? And I, right. I, I think that that's important. And I think that that's where even Facebook kind of understood that it didn't know the game as well as it wished it did. So it didn't bid on it, you know? And I, I, I mean, that's where I think some of the challenges lie. But, so you know, right now, I do have to say, all of this coming down to it, as we talk about all these media, we talk all this fractionalization. This comes back to the idea, and this is something that you know a professor said to me. You have no excuse now not to do something. You can start your own newspaper online. You can start your own radio station online. You can start your own TV channel online. Some You can even be live. All of the things that used to be barriers or hindrances or you used to have to – you know, basically beg for a job, you can now do. The difference is that requires you to be a hustler. It requires you to go out and sell that advertising. There is no safety net. But then again, that safety net was false because the second that they got you, the, they would tell you what you could and couldn't do. So if you want to be a food chef, you can now be a food chef and you just set up your three cameras record it in advance and then, you know, cut it and then throw it online. But you have to do that yourself. You can't be reliant on somebody else to provide the production crew or provide all the equipment or actually give you a salary in order to do it. Right. You now have to do it yourself. And if you don't, that's, you know, really on you. And that's why, you know, you doing the podcast is great. You're going to learn so much about yourself and whether or not you have the willingness to get to 700 episodes. Because there were times that I didn't want to do it. But, I can imagine, sure. You know, there are also times in which I was more than excited to do it. Right. Well, it sounds like if you're doing road trips around it, I mean, that's fantastic. So in your career, so now, you know, we, we've talked about the, the journalism side, but there was a point, 
Um, and maybe it was a specific point that you can recall where you transitioned into ticket sales, ticket operations. Did that become a passion gradually overnight? Was it just something you fell into? Talk about that because that's really your focus now. Okay. So what happened was I was in uh, the student newspaper office at Eastern Washington University and um, the sports information director at Eastern, Dave Cook, had given the um, Spokane Shadow, um, which was a premier development league team, uh, my uh, contact information said, hey, you might know somebody that uh, wants to be a PR director. Okay. So I said, I'll do it. This sounds like fun. It was over <laughs> a summer. Well, I show up and PR director also means selling tickets, which I didn't know, but I was fine with it. Now, I'll give you a comparison. There was a guy named John there who had just graduated from the University of Idaho in general studies, and I'll remember this till the day I die. John said, I'm not picking up the phone. I'm not doing that. I, I got a degree. And the difference was I stayed through the summer and John left pretty quick. Hmm. You know, uh, the thing is, is I didn't care. You want me to wipe down tables? You want me to wipe down chairs? I'll do it. You want me to sell concessions? I'll do it. I don't care. You know, something fun, something different. And you have to have that humble attitude of, sure, let's do it. So when they handed me a list and said, we need all these people called and uh, told that they need to get their season tickets. And they had about a, a season ticket list of about 1,500 for a 22,000 seat stadium. But I mean, there were, there were still fun adventures. I also learned how to leverage there. So then I get back to... Um, Eastern, um, the sports information director goes, Hey, do you want to be my graduate assistant? Sure. So I'm in sports information cause it's writing and I'm doing it. And then, you know, a uh, new sports or a new sports administration program over at Seattle, U opens up and I'm originally from the West side of the state. So I'm like, eh, I'll apply there for, you know, the 2006, you know, 2007 season here I get in. And the first thing I get over there and this was, you know, my first example of how sports can change. I get over there with the SID saying, hey, this is going to be great. You know, I'm going to have a GA. Uh, first day I get in there, he looks at me and goes, well, I'm leaving. What? He goes, oh, <laughs> don't worry. Talk to the associate AD tomorrow and uh, everything will be fine. You know, talk to the assistant AD, talk to the, uh, the AD. I uh, show up uh, the next day, you know, as there's this turmoil because the AD also resigned. So I go up to the associate AD and I go, are you staying through this? He goes, yes. Who are you? The, uh, the SID had not told anybody that I was coming. Fantastic. Luckily, the, um, the associate AD found, you know, enough room for me to stay. But so that next year at Seattle U, I was uh, sports information and I kept getting annoyed because the phone kept ringing. This phone kept ringing down the hall. They had hired somebody uh, for um, a game management position whose job it was to actually make phone calls or actually take ticket sales calls. for. And they'd only had like 17 people to one of their basketball games the last game that I saw, which meant parents weren't even showing up, right? So I, uh, I said, I'll answer the phone. Well, we can't give you a phone because if we give you a phone, it's like 200 bucks to install and blah, blah, blah. You know, and this is before cell phones were huge. I said, I'll literally go to the bank. I'll get you $200. Just give me the phone because I'm sick of listening to this. And the AD laughed, uh, Bill Hogan, and he said, oh, shoot, we'll just give you a phone. 
So they found the money in the budget. Well, so what ends up happening is we end up selling like $3,200 worth of tickets because I've got all those skills from the Spokane Shadow. And, you know, the, we end up selling out in two years to the point to where we have standing room only in our gym, which had held a thousand people. And against our arch rival, I guarantee you there were 1,600 there. There were people standing behind uh, each bench, you know, watching the game. And at a little over halftime, the coach Calero calls a timeout and we hear this moaning sound and we're like, what is that? Here it was the bleachers starting to buckle because they were from the 1940s. Right. So luckily, you know, first of all, we lose the game right on a last second shot and we uh, clear everyone out of there now in the and when he's talking in the back and. We had set up when YouTube at first began to where we would you know, record the stuff, then upload it on YouTube. And so we treat it like a press conference. Well, he gets in there and he starts blaming the crowd because he says, well, you know, the it's uh, our players aren't used to that. Our players aren't used to such a large crowd, you know, et cetera. And so we went and got shirts the next day that said, uh, quiet, please, so our team can concentrate. So, I mean, there there are fun things that right. you can do all the time, but that kind of got me started into ticket sales, and it's been kind of a whirlwind since. Yeah, obviously, you, you are involved with several groups, um, and then when you were you recruited to UC Davis, or talk about that transition, and it looks like that ran um, while you were there concurrent to the podcast. I don't know if you started the podcast right after you started at UC Davis, um, or if that was just coincidental. Well, I also went back to my alma mater, Eastern Washington University, uh, did great there and sold out a stadium and then also ticked off an entire state. But well, uh, we can't skip over know, that. We can't skip over that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I pissed off an entire state to the point to where I, I won the most hated man in Montana um, you know, poll that they had out. And that actually beat their former head coach, Bobby Houck, that they did not like. Um, we did a, instituted a ticket policy to where um, because the problem was uh, we would play them every single year in our stadium and then their stadium the next year. So it was an even year. And in 2010, we had had red turf put in. So we're the only turf that you can see from space and birds do not like it because they think it's a lake of fire. But, uh, you know, so we have red turf and this thing actually galvanized a lot of people to actually be a want to be a part of it. But um, w- it was our first game. And, of course, the league schedules our biggest arch rival on that game that's going to sell out the stadium with their tickets. And I'm like, no. And so, you know, we talked about this. And this wasn't just me. This is the university president, the AD and other people were involved. But people pinned their stuff on me. The I mean, there was a. A, a big group of folks that had, you know, made this decision, but, uh, Montanans, um, you know, which are on this, uh, you know, message board, e Grizz all the time. They, um, and they're pretty active on it. Uh, they, uh, surmised that this was my fault and that this was something that I did, you know, and right. I, they have a well-complemented staff for, you know, tickets. They have a large staff, about four or five, you know, for their level. I had, I was a man of one, so it was easy to pick on me. So, I, I mean, I got all kinds of, you know, things, you know, we're going to kick your butt kind of threats. I got one death threat, but it was like kind of like stupid. Oh, geez. And, eh, whatever. Hey, it's I, part I, of people, the job, people, right? 
<laughs> now, people people put their passions in the wrong things, and then they wonder why they don't yield out. So right. we did that, and we sold out the stadium with our fans because we restricted uh, the actual tickets to where before September 1, because I think the game was on September 20th or September 19th, before September 1, you had to either buy season tickets or you know you had to be a donor and then you could buy extra Montana tickets. Now, the reason for this was because Troy was a person of one and Troy only had so many hands and Troy had to make sure that you know we actually sold season tickets or whatever before I got to the single game tickets were only going to be one game out of the next five, you know. Well, what happened was all of our donors that had never gotten tickets before started to buy them uh, just because, you know, shoot, this is a way to shut out the Montanans. And all these people that had never had the chance to actually go witness the game that were our fans that had never bought season tickets because they had never had the opportunity to even get to, you know, the Montana game because the Montana game, we'd just consign a good half of the stadium to uh, Montana. Um, they actually bought season tickets. We've sold a record amount of season tickets, like 5,000, et cetera. And what ended up happening from that was we started a sellout streak. We started a sellout streak that actually still continues to this day. I mean, they've had it where they've released, you know, a certain amount of extra tickets or whatever, but you know, it's consistently been there. Now they won a national title that year. So I'm not going to claim that everything was just because of an ingenious ticket idea, but at the same time, um, you know, it shows that if you can if you can build a crowd and you can make that gener- you know germinate, it has the ability to you know kind of grow and foster. And I think that's something that you know I learned at Seattle U and Eastern was something that I learned that I kind of forgot when I got to UC Davis. And mm-hmm. I'm being you know a little bit more poignant when I say this is that you don't need the most amount of money. And I used to think that that was an important thing, more staff, more money. And when I transitioned to UC Davis, I found that the more staff that you have, the more political it becomes. And the more staff that you have, the more compartmentalized you are. And, you know, over the last four years, I I don't know that, um, you know, really I felt as, you know, free to do things as I did at Seattle U or Eastern. So, I mean, there were some successes. There were some things that I can be proud of. We did a lot of stuff, especially um, being pretty efficient at, you know, really kind of getting a lot more stuff on campus. Uh, But that also kind of grew the breadth of my, you know, what I did. So I wasn't just doing athletics. I was doing ticketing for, you know, you know, cheerleading events and other events. And it just, to me, while I had more staff and while I had more people under me, it wasn't as enjoyable as it was going back to the time to where it was a person of one. And I would sit down with the marketing director. We'd say, great, we can do this and just check with the AD and then roll with it. Now we had a committee of 10. Right. And with all those, the committee of 10 or a committee of 20, you suddenly have personalities and sometimes those personalities are in conflict with revenue generation because they really don't have to show revenue on their side. You still are accountable for revenue, but a lot of times, you know, within that space, you know, they they honestly, since they're not and they're helping make those decisions, 
a lot of times they're not going to get there with you because they they view and this is something that you know I I've had this discussion before but this view of sales being hucksterish or marketing being slimy and I think that that's an issue that we as a nation have is that or we as a world have is that we've I think we've lost our view of how to sell or we that we view everything as a wolf of wall street leonardo dicaprio how right. can i cheat you out of money that's not sales at all i mentioned that um you know southwest washington you know automotive group that i you know kind of went to last night i did i sold them on myself i didn't sell them on anything else but if i can call those people up you know and i do have a product to sell i i mean i don't know that i do at this point but if i did I'd be able to sell them simply because of our relationships going forward. The problem is, is that not enough times are invested in that. Enough time is invested in social media. And look, I'm a, I'm on social media all the time. But you've got to put in the personal relationships. You've got to stare people in the eye, and you actually got to care about what they talk about. And that, to me, is something that I think a lot of people have lost because their eye is still on how do I move the most product possible instead of how do I gain the friends that are going to get me to a level to where I'm consistently successful. You know, and that to me is something that I think is lost at this point. So, you know, my time at Davis was uh, interesting. Um, I wouldn't give it up, but um, I definitely am enjoying the consulting roles and uh, doing some other stuff. It's a lot easier. You factor out all of the drama. Right. I mean, all Work of the yourself. all the personal conflicts of people saying no specifically because it's not in their best interest and they don't really care if you do it. So, I mean, those types of things come up. And I'd always heard that from as you, we, you got to larger schools, things that happened. But I kind of ignored it thinking I've had fun at Seattle U and UC Davis and they weren't or Seattle uh, Eastern and they weren't all, you know, bread and roses. They weren't all, you know, easy you know, from, you know, that no matter what, you always had, um, you know, everything go your way. But usually I can get my way if it's a small group. Because, and I'm sorry, but I'm going to say that that comes with a little bit of sales ego. I usually feel I'm right and I'm probably correct. So, you know, but, you know, you talk about associations and stuff of that nature. Natso um, was completely a uphill battle. Um, which was it and was you, under NACTA. You We'd that, gone to, correct? Well, well, we had gone to NACTA the last few years. Um, you know, ticket folks. There'd be about seventy that would fi- file into a small little conference room, and we'd go have a breakout session. And I'd bring it up several times, and everyone would go, "Ah, there's not going to be enough room for it. There's not going to be enough interest in it." You know, blah blah blah. And I was just a screw it. Let's do it. And so I actually went through the process of doing it. Everyone told me that it wasn't going to. But then I found capable people uh, that would be around me. Matt Harper uh, was at University of Oregon. He was capable. Great. He's on my committee. Um, Carrie Neville, who's now the president, Cleveland State, she's capable. She'll do stuff. Great. She's on the committee. Uh, Jason Martin, he was at Ohio State and then Arkansas State. Great. He's on the committee. The difference is, is you find capable people that are willing to push the ball not just to the one yard line, but to you know throw a pass that gets it into the end zone consistently. You know that's where I I think that you look at successful teams. They're not just one or two people. There are a multitude of people. Sometimes people that you would say aren't always the most public, 
but they will deliver. Delivery is huge. Right. Uh, and so we went that first year that we actually started late and they thought, oh, maybe we'll get, a, you know, 75 people to sign up at $150 each. We had 210. And then the next year we had over 300. And, you know, from that we had over 100 people that uh, showed up at each conference uh, the first two years. I think that's huge. And that comes from people buying in and people really wanting to be a part of it and developing personal relationships. Did I have to call a lot of people individually and say, hey, man, I need you to sign up, you know, blah, blah, blah? Of course. But I would have done that anyway. And the thing is, is the reason I could leverage that was not just because of a podcast, but it was because I had industry connections of people that I'd met over the years and I'd fostered relationships with. And when they're buying a product, they're not buying a product. They're buying you. Right. And that's the thing, whether this podcast or whatever, they're buying you as, you know, you are not, you know, something that you're going to just drop tomorrow. And that's where a lot of people fail, too, is they they sell something that they don't believe in or that they don't really have a passion for. Or that they're only going to be there temporarily. Well, that doesn't really yield out very much, does it? Sure. So uh, now your focus is on the boot camps. It's on the podcast. Is there anything else I'm missing? Or, or really is is the boot camp and your consulting uh, your main focus now going forward? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been fun. I'm always open to opportunities. But, you know, I'm actually, you know, back in southwest Washington state, which is great for me because, you know, um, I missed – uh, you know, about 13 years here, I'd come back for holidays. But, you know, I have a 17 year old nephew that, you know, I've kind of seen off and on. So, you know, to, great to kind of hang out with him more. Now, you know, I have a six year old nephew that, you know, he and I seem to go places uh, during the weekends. So I'm getting to do things that I didn't get to do before. And yeah, maybe it's more of a quality of life thing. But, you know, that's the thing. I didn't start out wanting to be in sports. I, I wouldn't say I fell into it, but I was challenged by it. And now that I have uh, certain flexibilities and I have enough relationships to where one property or you know one school doesn't decide whether I work in this industry, it allows me to be more flexible and you know more kind of you know exuberant with what I do. So I've kind of enjoyed uh, going back and forth and doing a lot of different things. I know this is long-winded uh, conversations, but I'm really one of those people that's kind of up for anything, and I'll at least try it once. No, and, and I, I think that's what makes your podcast unique, and you talked about this at the beginning as well, but you're not only interviewing sports business executives, but you know I know you've had people on that have uh, just sales techniques in general, uh, recruiters, uh, public speaking tips, all of that, uh, and I think it just reflects you as a as a person in general, and, and I think that's why so many people gravitate toward your podcast. So along those lines, do you have? I mean, this has got to be impossible, but do you have a favorite episode or guest? And then maybe among the seven hundred plus episodes that you've had, uh, two or three takeaways that you give maybe at your boot camp or anytime you're asked to keynote something that you say, you know what, these two people had the best advice over the years. Well, number one, you know, with so many episodes, the last thing that I'll do is play favorites. <laughs> okay. I do think John Spolster was great because a lot of people have read his stuff, but people may or may not 
want to, you know, like kind of know everything about it, but you know, he'll throw it out. Um, what I'll, what I'll say to, um, what I get personally that you do not, and you will get from doing these podcasts is the extra time, the time to where record has not been hit. And that's something that you won't value until you get to about episode 75, 100. And then you'll start going, wow, I'm learning more than even my listener. And the reason why is because once record stops and it's just you and I talking or, you know, you're talking to this person, you're getting extra access that they don't, you know, tend to get from anyone else. And I think that that's, you know, important. I mean, I think that it's uh, Al Guido has uh, been, you know, an uh, interesting guy to talk to and I've continued to have a relationship with him. He's the president of the 49ers. Um, I mean, but those things come up. He was listening to my podcast. I didn't know. You know, but then he reached out and said, sure, I'd love to do it. You know, and those types of uh, relationships go hand in hand. What I like about the boot camp is a lot of times I get feedback on what people are thinking as well as what um, really they wish that would be incorporated. And the cool thing about the boot camp is while the boot camp happens live, anybody that's part of the boot camp uh, receives all of the videos to where they can watch them uh, through an internal portal for the next year. You know, so I still see and a lot of people train their staffs on them. So I'm like, that's cool. That's what it should be about. And, you know, my takeaways are, you know, the second you stop learning, you're done. And if you think that, um, you know, what we've done in the 1990s is relevant to today, probably not. Hmm. You know, I think it's more important than ever to change it up. That doesn't mean that everything that you've done is done. But, you know, you've, you've got to kind of, you know, do a mixed salad approach when you're you're looking at these things. Otherwise, you're going to fail. And we didn't really unpack the boot camp much. What can people expect from that? When is the next one? July 9th in Miami during the All-Star Game. So it's at the Lowe's Hotel. And here's the thing that I do differently. I keep the price point low. So my goal is not for you as an individual to pay. But my goal is for there is a 250 cost. But there's, you know, it's $1,000 for five people, you know, 15 people for like, uh, I want to say it's 2500 and then unlimited for 3000 what I'm hoping is we get more sales teams that are going and teams typically will make the excuse, shoot, I could, you know, spend 3000 on sales training, get them all down there. And they actually get to go through the ALSD conference, which is when they do a facility tour, that usually means that you get drinks, you get food, you get to do a lot of bizarre stuff. It's great. But what we do differently is I have 17 speakers. They're each doing a half hour of presentation Limited PowerPoints, no keynotes, no panel discussions. I hate that stuff. That's all filler to me. That's all wasted time. I don't like keynotes and I don't like panel discussions because a lot of times you get one person that talks a lot. You get one person that doesn't talk and you got one person that you wish would actually talk but doesn't get to talk because the first person just yammers all the time. So th these so, are just these are more almost like TED Talk type things where someone goes up and talks on a topic for – 30 minutes? Yep, and they interact. And huh. that's the thing. You only get about uh, limited five or six slides. So I had um, Lindsay Boggs last year, and she is 
a LinkedIn queen. She knows how to use LinkedIn better than just about anybody. She, I mean, LinkedIn actually pays her to come out and talk at their events. She came to my event at, you know, Pittsburgh, blew the doors off. Guess what? She's never worked in sports a day in her life. But you know the difference? Everybody that attended that thing suddenly has better LinkedIn cultivation tools. And they know how to use them in a way that's blowing the doors off the, you know, the barn right there. So, sorry, I used a lot of, you know, different kind of analogies. (laughs) But I like it. You know, it's my Kevin Collaboral days. Kevin Collaboral is a play-by-play guy from – he used to be the Seattle Supersonics play-by-play guy. So he used to – Use a lot of those. I was so, going to say, I think bread and roses has been my favorite thus far. Oh, I've, thank you. Yeah. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, you know, that to me is where you you learn um, more by people outside your industry going, hey, what are we doing different? Um, this year, I'm going to you know bring a lady that uh, does predictive prospecting. Now, she's worked at different tech companies, and she knows how to you know, really prospect in different ways, online, digitally, et cetera. She's never worked in sports. I don't want just people that worked in sports who are going to say the same thing or sell their system. Because a lot of times their system is antiquated two or three years down the line. I want stuff that's different. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people with great sales training techniques. Um, You know, Kathy Burroughs comes to mind. But I want to have people that are doing things different. Dave Wakeman, who's, who calls himself the ROI architect and probably lives up to the, the title, um, you know, talked just about adding value. Talked about that for a considerable amount of time. I thought it was great. Those t- and by the way, after 17 people, you can't tell me that you didn't get a lot of information and you didn't get a lot of stuff. I have people that write whole notebooks uh, you know, out of that whole session. And then they come back and they go, when is the stuff going to be online? I want to watch the stuff. Great. I had a stand-up comedian talk about how to market events, specialty events. He goes, you know, I've got everything against me. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a one-off, you know, pony sometimes, but guess what? I may have five or six uh, events that same night you know, that ha- that I have to drive people to. How sure. do I drive people to when I've got monster truck rallies and anything else that can possibly come around? How do we become the circus? Uh, that was great. There was, uh, you know, other folks that have, you know, done uh, different presentations. Uh, I had a um, Rob Sign, who's the president of IMG Learfield. Uh, he did it to me the first year in San Francisco as a favor. He goes, uh, sure, I'll give you that half hour. I'm in San Francisco, whatever. Shows up and does an entire presentation on group sales that I guarantee you is looked at completely different than anything else anybody is doing because specifically he talked about it in a different way. He talked about it and how to get groups that aren't normally coming to your events but to foster them you know, through each group member's experience. I thought it was fantastic. And that to me is where if you're somebody trying to get better at this industry and you happen to attend one of these events, you not just get, you don't just get the live events that you had, but you get that back catalog, which is about 42 videos right now, sure. about a half hour to an hour each. So you get to watch a ton of stuff and you get to get better at it and you can continue to look at it. And I think that that's important because so many people will – rely on the same things that their circle of friends are saying their circle of friends may not know so that's where you know and i i wanted to do something that wasn't boring because i think after a half hour 
You know, and I, by the way, this podcast has been rolling about an hour. So about a half hour of it, I've been boring. You know, I, <laughs> I think a half hour is really somebody's limitation a lot. Of no, I understand. But hey, at the same time, Troy, this is good stuff. And, you know, I look at it as if somebody's got a half hour commute, they can do it in a there and back. So um, as we wrap it up, uh, you talked about the boot camp. You don't think that somebody looking at their at their car phone right now or their you know their car speaker system going shut up. If please, somebody please is listening stop. to this podcast, they also listen to yours. So come on, yeah. man. They 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 know what they're getting into. Um, oh. But you're right. I mean, you know, to your point, most of the podcasts that I've done have been in that thirty to forty minute range. And again, that's a lot of that is looking at what you've done and what you've uh, had success with. So, um, but come on, I'm not going to stop recording, Troy. We're, we'll wrap it up. We'll, I promise. All right. So uh, the boot camp, the podcast. I know you said you're open to other opportunities. What do you think is next? Is there something that you haven't done uh, that you maybe have your eye on? You talked about video. You know, I, I just personally have wondered, have you ever thought about um, videotaping maybe at a conference when you do the eight or ten podcasts, you know, running a camera and putting those kind of almost like a vlog? Um, anything like that that you've thought about maybe for this next chapter in your career? Um, actually, if you look at the YouTube channel, there are uh, several of those that I have done, you know, the three camera shoot. Oh, great. I unfortunately, when it comes to video, I get too much of a perfectionist. And so I can't just do one camera. I got to do three cameras plus the audio split. And then it has to have good lighting because sometimes the lighting isn't there. And that's why I like the audio side because of the fact that, you know, it's just one thing. You just have to have clean audio. That's one thing, by the way, that I will say some of these podcasts, you have to have clean, clean audio, you know, just do the one thing right. You know, I mean, the questions are great and everything else, but if your audio is kind of going in and out, that's why I always try to get people not on cell phones when I interview them, whether it be through the Skype connection or if you can do it where they have Skype on their cell phone and then they connect to Wi-Fi and then you connect it that way. That actually um, works just actually it works cleaner than sometimes even a landline. So I try to get as clean an audio as possible. But, yeah, those perfectionist things, you know, work out. But I don't know. Um, you know, to me, the one thing is, you know, locality. I'm enjoying, you know, being around my family. And I, I don't know that um, I necessarily need to work at a property anymore. But if an opportunity did come, I would definitely listen I don't know that I always want to just be in tickets because I think that on the ticket side, it doesn't get still get as much respect as it should, especially in college. And when it doesn't get respect, you end up getting other voices saying how that's really not that important, even though they still look at those budget lines and wonder why they didn't make more money. So, you know, I mean, I, I might be more on the marketing side, but, you know, um, it just depends. But marketing sometimes to me, Seems like people just give free stuff away rather than right. try to impact and bring new people up. It's different. We'll see what happens. Well, I, I got to tell you, it has been an honor to have the most hated man in Montana on the podcast, Troy. Uh, no, but thank you for spending time. I know you feel like we ran long, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure the listeners will as well. Um, check out the Dow Sports Podcast. They probably already are if they're here. Um, but truly, thank you for joining us, and uh, I can't wait to listen to future episodes. Well, fantastic stuff. Thank you very much for having me.
Thanks for listening to the Front Office Exchange, where you hear about the careers of some of the leading executives in sports business. Visit us at frontofficeexchange.com, on Facebook, at Front Office Exchange, and on Twitter, at Front Office EXCH, to access past episodes, show notes, and much, much more. 